Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Inflation, recession fears, and the optimal stocks and bonds balance in one's portfolio are top of mind for investors in 2023. Who better to address this and more today than Fidelity's global asset allocation team? On today's podcast, we'll hear from portfolio managers David Wolf, David Talk, and institutional portfolio manager Alain Colette. Their working relationship extends well beyond their tenure at Fidelity. The three of them met years ago while working at the Bank of Canada. Together today, the GAA team manages nearly $80 billion in multi-asset funds for Canadian investors, while the overarching Fidelity GAA group manages over $200 billion. Today, the team sits down with host Kelly Creelman, SVP Products and Marketing, to dive into who they are, what they manage, and touch on the topics on the minds of investors today. What they manage includes the Fidelity Managed Portfolios, or FMP, suite of funds. And we'll hear about the similarities and differences between the products, including how to determine which product is the right fit for you. Today's podcast was recorded on January 31st, 2023, as an interview in front of a live audience, recorded during Fidelity Canada's Vision 2023 event. The panel also fields questions from the live audience, and please note you will hear references to a few slides displayed to the room. Also, for more podcasts from the event, please subscribe as they'll be released in the coming days. Or for full video replays of the event, advisors should reach out to their Fidelity rep, and investors should head to fidelity.ca slash the upside and sign up for the Upside newsletter. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. I'm going to start with Alon, um, Global Asset Allocation Team. Maybe just talk to me about what you do, um, and we can dive into the funds a little bit more. Sure, yeah, thanks very much. I am, I'm excited to be here, and I think that's a great place uh, to start. So what do we actually do? <clears throat> um, that's an important question to answer. <laughs> you know, I think everyone in this room understands the benefit of combining asset classes together to smooth out the bumps and wiggles, right, the ups and downs that the market might, may provide. Um, or in the context of last year, the downs and downs. And while we don't pick individual stocks or credits, what we do is we reach across the full breadth of fidelity and pick underlying managers and then lean in or out of asset classes and combine the managers with our tactical decisions to come up with a broad array of funds, right, with varying degrees of, of expected risk and return, with different styles, and really what we have is sort of every, for every type of investor, there's a fund on this slide, right? And so that's what we're looking at here. So we manage the multi-asset class solutions for Canadian investors. And again, through very thoughtful combinations, we're able to create funds, uh, or manage funds rather, with varying degrees of risk and return, uh, varying types of styles, um, and, that, and that's what we see here. And you know, again, we're proud of these results. They take a long time and, and a very dis disciplined approach, but these are the funds that we manage for Canadian investors. Now, there's a lot of different ways you can add, I'll say, sources of alpha or different ways you can add returns to a portfolio. 
the Fidelity Managed Portfolio is a great example of you having a lot of flexibility. So maybe walk us through, F and we call it the FMP suite in particular. Sure. So I think you know the managed portfolios. The reason we'll really highlight um, the discussion around them today is they are the all-weather fund-to-fund solution that really take the best advantage. I think of the combination of choosing underlying managers and the tactical decisions. Um, and so there are really two aspects to that. Um, the first is uh, the security selection element, right? And that is us selecting from across fidelity managers of different styles, um, you know, of, of different regions, of different asset classes, and bringing them together in a very balanced way, right, into the funds that we manage. And the second part is us leaning in or out of, of various asset classes, which, you know, my colleagues will talk about today. And that's really the, the tactical overlay, the active asset allocation that, that comes into play. So what we sometimes like to say on this slide is, you know, we're not going to win maybe every day or every year, but over a longer period of time, my colleagues have described it as our job is a hockey coach and we need to, I've got to get this right, we've got to pick the players and then choose the lines, choose the players and pick the lines. Um, not a sports guy. Yeah, yeah, so I... <laughs> yeah, I hope you're not the coach. Yeah, yeah, so I, I use, uh, I use, instead of sports, I use a food analogy. I prefer, uh, so our job is to bake a pie. We have to choose the ingredients and then cut each slice relative, uh, in the right relative size. So, and that, uh, and that's how we, that's how we achieve these results. So you talked about active views. I'm going to have to be specific about David's. So David Wolf, and I, I won't call you Wolfie, like Jeff Moore did this morning. Um, so David Wolf, if you could just talk about how you form those active views. Sure. So thank you very much, Kelly. Thank you, everybody, for, for joining us today. It's great to have an opportunity to talk about how we think. Because at these sorts of events, we talk a lot about what we think. And we're going to do that today. But the process that we undertake to come to our views and apply that in terms of tactical asset allocation, hopefully will give you some useful context to the kind of information uh, that we're going to give today. So there are really two pieces to forming our active asset allocation. The first is what we think. And that's forming a well-founded view. And with that, we get a lot of help from our research department. So we have... 23 analysts in Boston full-time who are dedicated exclusively to asset allocation. And they're providing us with forecasts of everything from the next inflation number to 20-year projections of real returns, basically every asset class around the world. And so what they do is fundamental and foundational to the kind of views that we're going to be taking the positions that we have uh, within the asset allocation funds. Um, at the same time, I've been doing this long enough that um, I know forecasting is hard. <laughs> it's very, very hard. Um, and the reason forecasting is so hard is because the models with which you forecast are wrong. They're by definition wrong. They're models. They're simplified representations of a really complicated world. I mean, if you think about it, you have billions of not-so-rational people making trillions of decisions every day. And it's, it's sort of hubris to think that you can boil all of that down to a few simple equations. And even if you could get the history right, you know, things change. New stuff happens. Relationships change. The future is never going to look exactly like the past. So we use the models, and we use them to... to foundationally um, put together our forecast. But the other part of our process is really to pick apart the models to really understand how they work and where they're likely to be wrong. Because if we can do that, we can understand where markets 
can go wrong, and it's the opportunity to really put on a, a strong active position. Um, if I could give uh, an example briefly. So if you go back a year ago, uh, we were very worried about inflation. I think most people in, in the room heard us uh, talking about that really quite a bit while the market narrative was still transitory. So why did we think inflation was a problem? Well, it was supply and demand. Uh, you'd basically created a bunch of money during the pandemic and given it to people, so that was going to stoke a lot of demand. And then on the supply side, you had constraints, not just supply chains, but labor shortages, commodity scarcity, et cetera. So more demand than supply, prices are going to go up. And there wasn't any sign that that was going to change anytime soon. So we could see that. Why couldn't markets and central banks see that? And the reason they couldn't see it is the models that they use to forecast inflation don't have supply sides in them, which sounds crazy because supply is half of the inflation equation. Mm -hmm. But for 40 years, supply hadn't really been relevant in forecasting inflation. And these models were getting super complicated. So they decided, let's take out the stuff that doesn't really matter. And it turns out it does matter. But so if we back up we understood not only what we thought was going to happen, but why others were going to get that wrong, and it gave us a real opportunity. So what did we do? We shifted our asset allocation to protect against inflation. Uh, we bought commodities. We bought gold. We bought inflation-linked bonds. We held more Canada than we usually do because of the commodity linkage. And we reduced our equity and interest rate risk uh, because monetary policymakers were inevitably going to have to react to higher inflation with, with tighter monetary policy. You know, as it happened, markets obviously had a hard time with the aggressiveness of monetary policy, particularly in the first half uh, of last year. And we didn't get it perfectly right, um, to be sure. But by making these asset allocation shifts, we were able to at least mitigate some of the damage in the funds. And so, uh, David Talk, if you could walk us through how the funds are positioned today. Yeah, absolutely. And let me also just extend my welcome to everybody in the room and everybody watching at home. So uh, you heard how we think. Now I'm going to tell you about how those views are reflected in the positioning we have across our global balanced managed portfolio. But this view is reflected across the entire suite of our funds as well. So just to orient you to what I hope is everybody's favorite slide uh, in the room, uh, no disrespect to the slides that Alon presented earlier, <laughs> this gives you the positioning of the global balance managed portfolio. So that is a 60-40 fund, about two thirds of the benchmark is outside of Canada. And all the bars you see are the overweights and underweights on the left and the green uh, in terms of the different equity regions. And then on the right, in the blue is the different fixed income allocations that we have. The diamonds you see uh, show where we were at the end of 2021, and the slide uh, itself is as of the end of 2022. So a few very high-level comments, and I know we'll be able to dig into each of these bars in much greater detail over the course of the session. But you can see from stocks versus bonds, if you take out the commodity position, we're about 5% underweight uh, equities. So we would characterize that broadly as a moderately defensive allocation. And I'll get into the motivation of why that's the case. But what you also see uh, on the bond side of the portfolio is that we're basically offsetting that underweight to equities with an overweight to short-term or cash securities. And within that bar, there's a fair bit of US dollar exposure as well to enhance the traditional defensiveness of that particular allocation. David Wolf touched a little bit on the inflation story. That's still something that we believe in, and Alon will give much greater detail there. But we continue to hold that protection against inflation 
in the form of not only commodities, as you see on the equity side, but also inflation-protected government debt tips and real return bonds on the bond side of the portfolio. The third theme that's very core to us and a high conviction view that I think most folks in the room have heard us talk about before is the underweight we have to Canadian assets. That is motivated by the vulnerabilities that we see in Canada's economy, not only within the consumer, but in the housing market more generally. I think Canada might face a, a more difficult outlook given some of the external backdrop as well. And that's another theme that we'll dig into in much greater detail. But just quickly on the positioning, you can see we're underweight Canadian equities, underweight Canadian bonds, and then by extension, underweight uh, the Canadian dollar. So what's the motivation for this moderately defensive positioning? Well, it comes really down to the four pillars that underpin our process. So those four pillars are the macro, bottom-up, valuation, and sentiment. And I'll start with a bit of an overview of each of those pillars. So I'll start with the macro. It's certainly the most familiar um, to us on stage. And I think the macro outlook you know, is one of a little bit of concern. So I think we're different than the market right now, and, and the reason why is, is some of that disconnect between the way the market views the world and the way we view the world is that we don't really subscribe to the soft landing narrative as being the most likely outcome. Because our work and our analysis does suggest that yes, inflation has peaked, but it's not likely to fall to levels that central banks are going to be comfortable with anytime soon. So that persistence in underlying inflation it was going to mean that central banks around the world are not going to be able to cut or provide additional policy stimulus as rapidly or as by, as by as much as the market currently has priced. So the combination of that persistence and underlying inflation with generally more hawkish central banks will mean that the economic fallout from that policy stance is going to be more severe. And I don't think that's fully priced into the market. So as a result, that's why we want to keep that defensive allocation reflected in the portfolio. And now you might ask, well, how do you calibrate the size of that underweight? So 5% is not nearly as far as we could go in terms of the tactical tilts we can take to this portfolio. And we've calibrated that underweight to reflect some maybe better news elsewhere in our process. So as you've heard from managers earlier today, and as you'll continue to hear this afternoon, generally bottom-up fundamentals are pretty good. Uh, we've been talking about this recession. Firms have seen this slowdown in growth coming from a mile away and have generally taken some steps to insulate their businesses against that outcome. So you can see that not only in, in maybe some proactive uh, curtailment of, of their wage bill in terms of uh, some uh, adjustment to hiring levels, but also in terms of using the very low interest rate environment during the pandemic to term out their debt to just reduce the vulnerabilities that exist within their businesses. So all things equal, that means that corporates are probably better positioned than they were going into prior recessions today. So that's a reason to say, okay, it may not be the worst case outcome for the global economy. And then I'd look at valuation, and valuation to us, you know, it's fairly neutral, I'd say. There's some assets that maybe look a little bit expensive historically, but we've seen a fair bit of movement in the price of those assets. But when we look at prior cycles, there are examples where markets were really extreme in their valuation. And that to us is something we want to lean against. And I would just make the broad assessment today is that those extremes in valuation that would warrant a more extreme positioning on our part just are not really there. 
And then finally, sentiment, you know, where we've seen bear market rallies uh, through the end of last year, through the early part of this year. And that reflects sentiment that gets skewed too far in one direction or another. And sentiment has since recovered from the very bearish positioning it had through maybe the middle of last year to something that's a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more balanced. So it doesn't give us a really clear indication as to maybe take a large tilt one way or the other, but knowing that sentiment can lead to these bear market rallies means we can't get, or we shouldn't get, absolutely max defensive as we try to navigate some of these other headwinds. So I know there's, there's a lot that was covered in there and there's definitely more opportunity to dig into all of this with subsequent questions. So we've talked a lot about inflation today. Every session we've touched on it. Alon, you have a tremendous background in inflation. So wondering if you could talk, we're coming off uh, multi-decade highs. Uh, many people think we've peaked. You know, what are your thoughts? Where are we going? You know, what are the implications of that? <clears throat> sure, yeah. I mean, that question literally puts me on the edge of my seat. <laughs> yeah, so I spent a, lo a long time thinking about inflation, having previously worked on an asset allocation research team in our Boston office. Um, and I think there's a few things to cover in that inflation discussion. The, the first question is, you know, where are we right now? The second question, which I think you were too nice to ask, is that's nice, but why should I care? <laughs> and the third one is, um, what are you doing to protect our, my portfolio against it? Right, so the first one we know, right? So inflation came up to... 9 and 8% in, in the US and Canada, respectively, um, and has since rolled and, and, and declined pretty quickly, right? I, if, you, if you rewind a year or a year and a half, the excuses we were given for inflation were uh, supply chain issues, right? Those have largely resolved and are out of the data. The second one, the second excuse we were given was actually all of this inflation, a lot of this inflation is transitory. I mean, the only thing that was transitory was the word transitory, right? And the third one is, uh, a very tight labor market. And where are we right now, right? So inflation has moderated considerably, both in Canada and the US, as supply chains have normalized, and those transitory effects or base effects have rolled off. And what we're left with is really the most problematic part of inflation, which is an extremely or excessively tight labor market leading to very, very strong wage growth. And that strong wage growth is translating into very, very strong service price inflation, right? So the reason, when you hear central bankers speak and they talk about the labor market and they talk about uh, very, very strong wage growth, the reason that matters is because the most important determinant of underlying inflation is the price you pay the person doing a service, right? Services are three quarters of underlying inflation. The price you pay the person doing the service, which is the wage, matters a lot more than uh, the price of things. Um, and so our view, has been for, for quite a while and, and remains so, until the labor market uh, loosens, right, which means, which in, which in English means an unemployment rate increasing, you know, until people are basically, until you have job loss and a less tight labor market, only and only then will you get slowing wage growth, which will lead to a sustained slowing in service prices. And so this is why our view on inflation has been for some time that you know, although it's moved to eight and nine percent, the move from let's say nine percent in the U.S. back to four, that's fairly easy and mechanical. The move from four percent back down to two percent is going to be much slower and much more difficult. And you know, the Fed knows this, right? So Chair Powell, in his speech in August in, in Wyoming, mentioned the word pain eight times in a seven minutes in a seven minute speech, right? So they're very very aware of the pain to households and pain to businesses. Uh, the second part is why should we care? And I think David Wolf will, will cover this in a little bit more detail, but 
The reason we should care about inflation, uh, this is the most important part about inflation for us as investors, is because inflation and inflation volatility erodes the relationship between stocks and bonds in a multi-asset class portfolio that where stocks do well in periods of growth and bonds provide you uh, with some income in periods of stress, that relationship gets destroyed in the presence of elevated inflation volatility or elevated inflation. That's why we should all be cheering on uh, you know, a, a sharp decline in, in inflation rates. The third point is, well, that's nice, but what are you doing to protect my portfolios against that, that shock? Um, a couple of things. First, as David Talk mentioned, you know, we own asset classes that do a good job of protecting investors against inflation, things like the commodity producers, which is oil and gold, and on the fixed income side, fixed income um, asset classes that, again, protect against uh, inflation. And the other thing uh, to highlight is, in September of 2021, we launched the Fidelity Inflation Focused Fund, uh, the first of its kind in Canada. You know, since launch, that fund is up, let's say, 3.5%. And its peer group is down almost 7%, right? So again, we have taken the steps, uh, both in the, in the portfolios we're discussing today and in a multi-asset class dedicated solution to protect investors against the damaging effects of inflation. So we actually have a question coming in about inflation, so I'll ask it now. Um, how do you view China reopening to potentially impact inflation? Any of you? Sure. Yeah, so... You know, there's a couple of ways to look at this, right? So the first thing, the first thing to note is a China reopening, right? China's, China's the exporter to the world, right? So the way, there's a couple of ways to look at China reopening. The first is if that exporter to the world um, and sort of global uh, industrial capital uh, starts up again, you could see some commodity prices sort of push higher. I mean, that would be the, the general expectation. The way that would show up in domestic inflation is Let's say it pushes oil higher, that would push gasoline prices higher, and that could push up headline inflation. The thing is, I think all of us pay much more attention to underlying core inflation, which again is driven 75% by the labor market and domestic activity. The other thing uh, you know, that where it could show up is a, normal, a further normalization in supply chains, mm -hmm. right, which would exert downward pressure. But again, at this point, that's not really the primary, my primary concern around inflation. I mean, again, Lettuce prices are up 40% in the last three years. I mean, suddenly everyone's like a lettuce enthusiast. But, uh, you know, mm -hmm. there are meaningful changes in some of those price components. But outside of the headlines, right, on used car prices moving higher and food prices moving much higher, which I'm sympathetic to, it's much more important what is happening with the labor market and service prices. And the Fed knows this as well, which is why you've seen such a sort of aggressive stance from both the Fed and the Bank of Canada. David Wolf, question for you about central banks. So we've talked about inflation being transitory a couple times in this session and other sessions, and you know, talking about the Fed being hawk, uh, the central bank being hawkish, and potentially in late innings of, the, uh, of their hiking cycle. You, you said earlier, a little skeptical on a soft landing. Maybe you could just expand on that a bit and give us your thoughts on that, if sure, it's possible. Sure, happy to. Um, so Maybe the best way to frame it is to go back to, to the basics. So what are central banks doing? So inflation has become a problem. Their number one job is to control inflation. They didn't do a very good job, and they have to fix it. And how do you fix it? You raise interest rates. That tightens financial conditions. It slows down the economy. And you want to slow it enough to generate some slack into the system. And by generating that slack, you take the pressure off of prices, and you control inflation again. 
So that's the idea. And so underlying that is really two important questions to answer. Number one, how much do you have to slow the economy to get rid of those price pressures? And number two, what interest rate is going to do that for you? And the answer to the, those questions, both of them, is I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You don't know. And the central banks themselves don't know. Um, they have models to help them kind of guide where it should be, but we know, and they know as well, that as I talked about earlier, all those models are wrong, imperfect, and, and flawed. So the real question that you have to ask and that they're asking themselves is, where are you willing to be wrong? What side of the ledger are you willing to make your mistake mm -hmm. on? Now, for 20 years, you were willing as a central banker to make your mistake on the easier side, willing to make a mistake with lower interest rates, looser policy than you need. Because your big worry was deflation and becoming Japan. And so you erred on the side of leaning against that by having low rates. Now the situation has entirely shifted. Now inflation is your biggest fear, and obviously a, a clear and present danger. So where do you make your mistake? You make your mistake being tighter than you necessarily have to with, with higher interest rates. And uh, Chairman Powell has said this many times. He said explicitly, the risk of doing too little is far greater than the risk of doing too much. So they're going to keep things tight until they're super comfortable that inflation is sustainably back down to the target. And what that means to me is rates are going to stay probably higher for longer than most are expecting. So the market has priced in in the US, and even more so in Canada, some cuts towards the end of the year. And unless things really collapse, I have a hard time seeing central banks be comfortable enough to cut. And you know what? If that results in a recession, to mm -hmm. Alon's earlier comments about willing to tolerate pain, then so be it. Great. So speaking about recession, Obviously, there are a lot of concerns about a potential recession. David Talk, what are your thoughts on the economic landscape right now? No, I think uh, following on from David Wolf's comments, at least on what central banks are, are, se are setting out to do, I mean, they're not malicious, evil people. I mean, we all worked at a central bank, and we're not evil or malicious. So they know that <laughs> this is just the collateral damage of bringing inflation down, because the risk of inflation becoming unanchored and seeping into expectations is really... Uh, something they want to avoid at all costs. So the recession that flows from that uh, is an, an inevitability, I think. Uh, so the question then becomes, everyone's talking about it. So yes, it's on everyone's radar, but what kind of recession? Because there are lots of different kinds of recessions that can be caused by a whole multitude of different factors. So the way that we think about it is, let's look at the shock into the economy. And the shock today is one of interest rates. So interest rates have gone up from a policy perspective. They've gone up at longer maturities as well. And as a consequence of that, that's going to be something that hurts different economies depending on how sensitive they are to interest rates. So if we can take down my flex slide and put back the balanced uh, fund positioning slide, you can see how that comes across in, in our positioning by region. So when we think about the different equity allocations, I'd say the US economy by virtue of its mortgage market and the fact that they've gone through the 2008-2009 cycle by rebuilding household balance sheets, they're much better able to sustain an environment of higher interest rates. So as a result, we're relatively more optimistic in our overarching degree of defensiveness when it comes to allocating into the United States. By comparison, uh, regions like Europe and certainly Canada I think have much more downside because of 
elevated interest rate sensitivity. So that corresponds to the type of allocations we have to those regions where we're worried about how higher rates of interest will impact their economies. And then finally, you see the overweight we have to emerging markets. And this keys in a little bit to the question that Kelly, you asked of Alon, that uh, the China reopening story. So when we think of where we all sit in the business cycle, you know, we're definitely seeing slowdowns in, in developed market economies. But China and other emerging market economies are already in recession and maybe with the reopening narrative starting to help China, are actually emerging out of recession. So if there's an area where we get a little bit of opportunistic uh, growth, it can come through China. And there is certainly a limit to how far China and emerging markets can disconnect from the rest of the world. But some of these idiosyncratic factors like reopening maybe allows that elastic to be stretched a little bit further than comparison in comparison to prior cycles. So uh, we would think there, that's the reason that we can be a little bit opportunistic with an overweight to help complement some of the uh, degrees of defensiveness we have expressed elsewhere in the portfolio. Well, and since we have this slide up, actually, I've got a couple of questions. One is, what are your thoughts on Canada? David Wolf. Sure. So pivoting off of uh, David Tulk's comments, so Canada is one of those more interest rate sensitive economies in contrast to the U.S. And I, we think that that makes the situation economically in Canada rather more challenging than in the U.S. And the markets are actually telling you that. So if you look at the yield curve in Canada uh, between the overnight rate, which is 4.5%, and 10-year bond yields, which are about 290 at this stage, at least they were this morning. So that's an inverted curve, 160 basis points. Over the last 30 years, the most inverted the Canadian curve ever got was about 60 basis points. So we're looking at about triple the inversion than we've seen at any point over the last 30 years. In contrast, the US, it's somewhat inverted, but not nearly as much and not out of line with history. In fact, the last time we saw a Canadian curve this inverted was 1990. And we know what happened after that. And that's not to say that we're going to have the identical sort of you know, long grinding recession that we did in the early 90s here. You know, history never repeats like that. But that's certainly the side of the risk. And it's going to be, we think, unfortunately, a bit of a shock to the domestic market and a lot of investors that haven't really lived through a domestic credit cycle since the early 1990s. And that poses some threat to a lot of different Canadian asset classes, not least the Canadian dollar itself. So one of the elements of our positioning, as you see here, is we want to be underweight those Canadian assets. And it's important to mention, and it goes back to something that Alon was talking about and, and David as well, we have that position, overweight U.S. dollars, not just because we have the view that the U.S. dollar is probably going to be stronger than the Canadian dollar, but also because it's defensive. And to unpack that a little bit, so what we've seen over the past year is as Alon mentioned, bonds haven't been doing a good job of hedging stocks. So that correlation has gone positive instead of negative. We think we know why that is, is because inflation volatility has come up for the first time in 40 years. And when inflation goes up, it's bad for both stocks and bonds. So that's what we've seen. Now the last few weeks, you still have a positive correlation. It's just both are going up, which not surprisingly, no one minds. <laughs> all that much. But you still need in, in RSC to think carefully about diversification and defensiveness. So what if inflation doesn't come down very easily the way markets are, are currently expecting? And there you need something that's going to hedge not only your stocks and your bonds. 
and the one asset that's shown itself over the past couple of years to be reliably negatively correlated to financial market performance is the US dollar. Mm -hmm. And that's why you know, we, we may have periods like the last three or four months where the US dollar tends to go down. Everything else is going up, so that's not that big a deal. But when you need that defensiveness, if you can't get it from stocks and bonds, it's one of the nice things about our seat that we have a lot of different dimensions, a lot of different tools we can use to defend portfolios, even if traditional 60-40 isn't quite doing that. And another question about asset allocation that came in from the audience is, what are your thoughts on gold? Sure. Yeah, so gold, uh, gold is an interesting one. Um, right? Nowhere do we have as much time series data to sort of stress test how it should react in the presence of you know, extremely elevated inflation. Um, I mean, and you know, there's such high conviction in that that it's almost 10% of the inflation focus fund. Um, what I would say is, I think a lot of people ask that question thinking, how come last year gold didn't um, sort of surge? And you know what, in relative space, in relative terms, gold actually performed quite well last year. Um, this is a question that we actually attempted to answer in our quarterly thought leadership paper. So we write a paper every quarter. The one that came out for Q1 was just 15 questions. And sure enough, that question made it in there. So when you look at gold versus the other building block asset classes that we have in our funds, it performed I think the best. I think it performed exceptionally well. You know, the other, uh, the other point to make is, you know, there has been some discussion and some research, and this is ongoing internal research as well, to suggest that, you know, maybe some of the interest in crypto, while that's faded a little bit, has taken the shine away from gold. There was a joke there, but, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's taken the shine away, from, you know, you take the jokes when you can, but uh, it's <laughs> taken the shine away from gold. I would say that research is ongoing, and we don't quite yet have an answer there, but um, basically I would disagree with the question because I would say that last year gold did exactly what it was supposed to do. Uh, we have a few minutes left. I want to do one more question and then I have a question for all three of you. So uh, last question, is anyone going to take a crack at when you think interest rate cuts will happen? It's a question from the audience. Anyone willing to say whether it'll happen before the end of the year? Well, so I talked a bit about how yep. hard forecasting yes, is. I know. Um, the Bank of Canada has been very clear that they think they've done enough and, yeah. and whether that actually is true over time, we'll have to see. But as I mentioned earlier, it's very clear that they, the Fed and others, need to be confident that inflation is no longer a problem to cut rates. It's very hard for me to see that happening this year. This year, yeah. And the only way that it can happen this year, in, in my judgment, is if things really collapse. Mm -hmm. And if things really collapse, they have bigger fish to fry, so to speak. I think there's one little element I might add to that. And this is maybe part of our process where I think it's a line that Mark Schmale used to use that he likes to see around corners. So insofar as we think about that question that you asked of Alon about China reopening and what that could possibly do to commodities as well as inflation. So you could get this very interesting dynamic where, yes, it's still largely a core services story, but operationally you might see headline inflation start to move higher as commodity prices re recover. So the market's very good at looking at the next move, but we want to think about the move that happens beyond that next move. So thinking about around the corner or two bounces down the road, if you want to use a different analogy, that's the motivator for us for still having those protection against inflation built into the into the portfolio. So just a little bit of a deeper thought into how we think about some of these longer term themes emerging through the portfolio. So I'm going to end it with a rapid fire question to each one of you, which is what keeps you up at night in this market? 
David Wolf, you start. Ooh, I mean, what doesn't keep us up? <laughs> I mean, we, we have fingers, yeah, you know, to so come full circle on Milan's yeah. analogy. We have fingers as multi-asset class investors on in every pie. <laughs> yeah. And so there's always something to worry about. I mean, I guess what, what really keeps me up at night is not the stuff that we can try to model and forecast, even if we're gonna get that wrong, at least we understand the size and shape of the issues. It's, you know, as used to be said, the unknown unknown. So there's a lot happening geopolitically. There's a lot happening behind the scenes in terms of the financial system and some of the cracks that may be revealed through higher interest rates. So it, the stuff we can see, yes, we're going to get more right or more wrong, but we have some degree of comfort in terms of the, the scope of risk that we're taking. But there are these events at a left field that we're not going to be, and nobody's going to be great at predicting, that really do concern me above all in terms of the investment process. Great. David Tulk? Yeah, I know this question gets harder to answer the further you get <laughs> yeah. on the panel, so uh, I'll jump in right now. Um, no, I think, I mean, the one thing, David Wolf really highlighted how we think as a group in terms of what, what worries us, but if I could dig in a little bit specifically, one thing I spent a lot of time thinking about is the correlation between asset classes. So again, we manage lots of different exposures and we rely on those historical correlations to a point, but the sense that you get shocks that start to interfere with those historical relationships just makes it harder, not impossible, but needs us to do more thinking as to how we provide that protection in these type of funds. Great, and Alon, finally. Unsurprisingly, inflation. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, so, you know, I just turned 45 a couple of weeks ago, so I don't sleep through the night anyway, but um, <laughs> inflation basically keeps me up because if it recedes too quickly, Right? That's a meaningful change in the view and in the landscape. And that's not the base case. But if inflation remains stubbornly elevated for even longer than we think, that would require some fairly painful decisions from global central banks. Well, this is a great session. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.